Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. On today's episode, we sit down with Jeff Allworth, author of The Secrets of Master Brewers, and talk about the notion of national identities in brewing. What makes Bohemian beers just so different from their neighbors in Bavaria? What impact did the Cold War have on brewing? And what does all of this mean for you when you're brewing, well, a Bohemian-style beer, a Bavarian-style beer, a British-style beer, a whoever-style beer? And hey, does America have its own national identity? Stay tuned and find out. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Okay, so it's the Brew Files. Let's get down to business. I have on the line Mr. Jeff Allworth. Jeff, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. All right, so Jeff, why don't you give everybody your beer bona fides? I am a writer, and I mostly write about books these days. So people, I think, if they've ever read one of my books, it's probably the Beer Bible. I've also written a cider book, which I'm really proud of, which very few people have read. So if any of your listeners have read them, kudos to them. It's called Cider Made Simple. And I just had a new book come out this spring called The Secrets of Master Brewers, 
which is a more kind of detailed dive into some of the techniques I learned when I was doing research for the Beer Bible. I also do a podcast called the Beer Bible Podcast with my friend Patrick Emerson, who's an OSU professor of economics. Well, that's Oregon State, for those of you who don't live in Oregon. And, uh, oh, I have a blog called Beer Bible. Well, you're just kind of keeping the brand very simple. I wasn't sure that uh, we should have gone with the Birvana podcast as the name, but Patrick insisted. What Patrick insists on, I guess Patrick gets no. <laughs> I guess, right. How did you get started in beer? Because I'm assuming that you weren't just you know walking straight out of the womb and saying, I'm going to write a beer book. No, that's true. I got into it a little bit incrementally. when. So I'm an old man. I'll turn 50 next year, which I'm really looking forward to. That puts you right between Denny and I, by the way. Oh, good. There's nothing, nothing to be ashamed about, I guess. So... In the 1980s, Oregon started to become kind of a beer mecca, and I started to get interested in beer along with everybody else. And in 1992, I went to graduate school in Madison, Wisconsin, which was a little bit of a beer desert at the time. And so uh, I started homebrewing, and actually I started homebrewing with Patrick, my podcast partner, who was also going to grad school there. Uh, so that we kind of got into homebrewing then, uh, we were doing extract. It was really, really crude times. They got really bad, uh, ingredients. They were very impressed that we knew how to pronounce Willamette, which was cool. And then when I got back to Oregon after grad school, an opening at the local alt weekly Willamette week opened up for a beer columnist and they hired me to write that. So once I started writing kind of more officially about beer, it snowballed until all this. And now, of course, we have your latest book, The Secrets of Master Brewers, which I picked up and was tearing through because, of course, you have a an entry in there on Saison DuPont, which is my Jimmy Jam. But it's it's a really, a really great idea for a book. So why don't you just tell us about kind of the inspiration behind it and how you went about actually getting all this information together and getting all these people to go, OK, here's a recipe and here's how we, how we do things. Writing the Beer Bible was an incredible experience. I got to draw up a list of all the breweries in the world that I thought were the best and that I wanted to visit. And I reached out to them and they almost all said, yeah, come on by and we'll show you what we do. And so I did that. And typically it was with the master brewer, which was just like going from rock star to rock star. Uh, you mentioned DuPont. I got to hang with Olivier Daydecker there. He's awesome. He's, he's super awesome. He's a really shy guy, kind of like me. So that was nice. It was very quiet time, but he's a really... Yeah, it was a great experience. So I just went around, uh, mostly around Europe for the book. And the book was written in two chunks over two years. And the first chunk was kind of the ale uh, styles. And then the second one was the lager style. So I, I went to countries. I went to Belgium, the UK, went into France for a little bit. And then I went back and went to Germany, the Czech Republic, and actually also dropped into Italy. And what I what that experience Kind of what I gleaned from that was that at each one of these countries that I was going to, I realized they had a really distinctive approach to the beer they made. Whether they were making a, one particular style or or multiple styles, uh, or whether you were like when I'm in Germany, whether I was visiting uh, the Kolsch region or going down to a lager brewery, they all had a really similar approach, and they differed. So the German approach differs markedly from the Belgian approach, and they all differ from each other. When I would come back to Portland, people would invite me to talk uh, about what I'd found. And they would always be surprised when I'd say, oh, yeah, you know, the Czechs, they do it this way or the Belgians, they do it this way. Because we don't really think of the, there being a kind of national tradition about the way people approach things, the way they think about beer. But it's very much the case. So I organized this book by those national traditions and then went back to those same brewers that I had hung out with and said, would you be willing to break this down into 
your recipe and formulation and just kind of talk about the philosophy and, and how you approach beer and, and how you make this beer in the traditional way. So that's kind of how I did it. And I, I didn't do every style in the, in the, the world. I sort of thought I was going to do that at the start. And then I realized, you know, when you're doing uh, a hell, you don't have to do a Hellas and a Dunkel. They're mm-hmm. basically recipe variations. So it would get really repetitive, really fast. So I just kind of took iconic styles that would tell you how to, how to do a, uh, like a Bavarian lager, and then you can go from there and change the recipe if you want to do a kind of traditional Bavarian lager. Not everybody was completely excited about giving me their recipes, and I was, uh, you know, I tried to really emphasize that it's not the recipe. I don't actually need the your recipe. I don't need you to give me, you know, the crown jewels. But this is a really common style in your country. And if you were teaching a class, for example, on how to, you know, make cascale, you know, what would the approach be and what would be like a typical recipe? And so that's how I approached it so that people could get a sense of that without the breweries having to feel like they were giving up something really valuable. I'm curious, were there brewers in particular areas that were more secretive and more hesitant or was it just onesie twosie type thing? That's a good question that no one's ever asked. I think it was more idiosyncratic it, yeah i think it was it wasn't that didn't really correspond to like there was no country that was particularly secretive i actually when i think about it the bigger the brewery the less likely they were to want to participate although you know i talked to hedwig nevin from from duval and he was happy to do it so it wasn't it wasn't a one-to-one duval is one of my favorite bigger brewing companies so like whenever they go and buy somebody like say firestone walker or boulevard or on the gang i actually don't kind of mind that because they're they seem to be a really good family type brewery yeah totally i as i was doing this i realized huh i've got a few of these guys in here from this conglomerate (laughs) so uh yeah i must i must also not be at all worried about that and i'll I'll just say the reason why i asked the country question is i've i've found in the past when i've talked to brewers from other countries that i mean most brewers are are like home brewers in the sense of Oh, you want to know what I did? Sure, I will show you what I did because this is kind of fun and we're nerds and we're talking about a nerdy thing. So please nerd out with me. That's totally my experience. But in my experience, I've always found that, at least to me, that most of the time uh, the Belgian brewers are the ones who get a little bit more cagey, uh, in my experience. Huh, that's interesting. They're still happy to talk about the beer. They're still happy to to share tips and tricks and secrets and whatnot. But you always get kind of a feeling, well, you get kind of a feeling that there's something being hidden in the background, something not quite being said. The Belgians are funny. They they all think that the beer they're making is, you know, a unique beer that, that no one else makes and is not replicable. Um, and it has their own essence in it. They're very, they're very individualistic that way. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's a factor, you know, whereas when you're talking about a Bavarian lager, all these guys go to Von Stefan uh, to learn how to brew. So they all got you know, the same education and they all know the same stuff. So they're probably consider it less proprietary than if you go to a little farmhouse brewery somewhere in Belgium. You said that when you first started this book, you were thinking about trying to break it down by styles and going to like all, all these, all these different styles. But, and I think that's kind of an approach that's really been, well, it's really been foundational to how beer knowledge has developed ever, ever really since, you know, say Michael Jackson really started to popularize it in, in the English language. You know, all the all the beer hunter stuff, but I've uh, but I've found like a, a lot of times like unless say you're in Germany where you know they're very strict about the beer style type thing, but particularly like if you're in Belgium or in France or here in the U.S. or in England even, uh, styles are kind of a more nebulous thing. They're not so much 
strict guidelines. It seems like what you were saying before, when you came back, you started talking about your experiences that you were starting to break it down and sort of instead of doing it by style, by breaking it down into these sort of brewing identities. Can can you talk a little bit more about that? And then maybe we can dive into a sample of or an example culture that you're talking about there. Absolutely. It's a it's kind of the way of thinking. I'll start with the United States because I think this is one that people will instantly recognize. When you go to an American brewery, they're they're really pretty focused on hops, no matter what kind of beer they're making, unless they're making unless they're like a traditional German brewery. Um, but if they're kind of a standard American brewery, it's really hard for them not to think about doing a whirlpool edition or maybe a little dry hopping, just something to brighten the hops along the way, because why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. This is kind of how uh, the Americans think about that. And when I went to other countries, I would find that breweries had a really similar orientation to certain character in the beer that that went across style and went across the whole tradition. So like when I went to when I went to the UK, I didn't talk to lager breweries. Uh, I only talked to traditional ale breweries. I learned that every so one of the things that you always do is you start out in the grain silo and you're looking at that and you say, so what kind of grain do you use? And I discovered instantly that all the, all the UK brewers had uh, really particular preferences for different kinds of barley variety. They, you know, there would be guys who were really into optic versus Maris Otter versus, you know, all the different kinds they have to get that kind of build that character. And then that led me to understand how much base malts work in developing typical character in, in uh, UK beers and that's really important because eventually down the line, a lot of those beers ends up end up on cask and the malts are really warm and contribute a lot of, of that that kind of classic flavor that you get when you when you serve it on cask. Uh, so it all kind of worked together. And I thought, that was, eh, that's kind of interesting. And then I went to Belgium and you go for the brewery tour there and you go you're going through the typical thing. And there's a few quirks in Belgian breweries. One of them is many of them uh, use corn. So you'll find a cereal masher along the way, which was kind of surprising to me. It immediately violates the American kind of obsession with all grain brewing to see Rodenbach using a cereal grain, you know, cereal masher over there and using corn. Uh, so that's interesting. But the most interesting thing about Belgian brewing is the the focus on yeast and how at the end of every brewery tour, usually you go to the bottling line and that's it. With the Belgians, you go to the bottling line and then you the tour continues. Then you go to the warm room where they're bottle conditioning the beer because every single – I didn't visit a single ale brewery in Belgium that didn't bottle condition their beer. It's a really, really important part of building that yeast character in that secondary fermentation. And they don't call it bottle conditioning because they don't think of it as bottle conditioning. They think of it as a secondary fermentation, a re-fermentation in the bottle. Uh, they consider that a critical component to the you know building that flavor. So every country I went to, I would find these – idiosyncrasies and quirks about the way they think about the beer and the belgians love other brewing traditions and for a while they got really into stouts and they got really into scottish ales and of course when they made those beers they didn't taste anything at all like stouts or scottish ales they tasted like belgian ales because they put it through this thing you know they'd use they'd add sugar or or corn and then they would use a really expressive yeast and styles that don't have expressive yeast to the same degree in, in the uk and especially in Scotland. And then they would referment them in the bottle and they ended up tasting like Belgian ales. And it's I was like, yeah, that's so classic. Of course you'd do that. You have no fidelity to that style. You just want to, you were inspired by it and it, you know, you put it through your uh, Belgian uh, cultural filter and it pops out like a Belgian beer. And that, you know, when people come to the United States and they try 
uh, Kolsch here, it tends to be a little hoppier than it would be in Cologne, and that you know you that you're finding that American hand at work. So you see that. In all these countries, there are some there are characteristics that really define them. For me, uh, I'm a big fan of milds. Uh, I have a whole rant about why why aren't more people making them? I'm with you, man. But one of the things that always cracks me up is I'll see these homebrew recipes, and the homebrew recipes call for two, three ounces of hops and like say a five gallon batch. And (laughs) when I do my mild, and I think I have a very spot on mild, my mild uses about 0.38 ounces of hops for five gallons. Yeah. And that's it. And then to fall on to some of the other things that you're talking about, I, I remember the very magical experience of walking into Orval's warm room mm. and just seeing cases upon cases of stacked bottles of Orval just sitting there waiting to mature. <laughs> it was such a g- glorious sight. Yeah, that's nice. And then thinking about the Belgian and, and, and the Scottish ales, particularly thinking about like, I mean, that's a, that's a whole story that's a massive kind of cross-cultural influence thing, you know, and Duval or Morgoth taking the McEwen's yeast and turning that into the thing that then became the Duval yeast. And then, yeah, the Scotch distillery and everything else. Yeah. To me, the Belgians are absolutely fascinating for the amount of uh, sort of cross-cultural appropriation that, that they're willing to accept or engage in. Yeah, totally. It seems like they're such a small country and so insignificant to the brewing world. Uh, you know, until the recent era that people just kind of ignored what the Belgians were doing. Um, Except for every nation that basically overran them and invaded them every 40 years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's another interesting thing. History is really present when you when you go through these countries. And I'm, I'm sure you encountered this. But in, in Belgium, you find no mash tons that are more recent than the 19, early 1920s. Yep. Because in World War I, uh, the Germans... When they when they sacked Belgium, they melted them down for munitions. And so every time you walk into a brewery, it doesn't matter how old the brewery is, you can say, ah, so how old is your mash done? And, oh, 1920. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And you see a lot there, like, from 1946. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I know why. Yeah. Now, that's kind of the, the general context. And, I, and I, totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think – and you see it sometimes in practices, too. Like, you know, the Belgians are big fans of multi-step mashes, the – Americans and the British are big fans of single infusion. But let's dive into, I mean, those are the big cultures that we all know. But of course, there's another one uh, that I think that you had a lot of sort of exposure to that you that you were excited to see a natural national identity out of. Are you speaking of our friends from Bohemia? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the funnest places to travel. And when people ask me where I sh- if they want to go on a beer tourism trip, where should they go? They, I think they always expect me to say Belgium, and I always say Czech Republic because it is so hidden to the United States. We really don't have any sense of what they have going on there, whereas we can get most Belgian ales here, um, and they are already bottled, so they travel pretty well, and you get a pretty good sense of what Belgian beer tastes like. But but the Czech Republic is like a black box that we don't know anything about, and it's really cool to go there and and see what they've got going on. So just when you go there now, just as a really quick overview, you find Pilsners, of course, uh, which is what they're famous for. They're not called Pilsners there. Pilsner always refers to Pilsner Urquell, the original Pilsner brewery. If you wanted a Pilsner, you'd order a Spetly Lejac, which is a, like a, a kind of stronger version. It's at the same strength as Pilsner Urquell, or maybe a Vychepny Spetly, which is a little bit weaker. It's more of a pub strength, but they also have, really cool amber lagers, which are called polytamaves, and dark lagers, which are either called chernes or tamaves. Cherne means black, and tamave means dark, but it seems like there's no no difference between them, and darker beers are sometimes called tamaves, and lighter beers are sometimes called chernes, and nobody really knows why. 
why they pick what they pick. But when you go into a pub, you know, you're usually going to have an opportunity to get, and they have, they have stronger beers uh, that you'll find uh, 16 Plato beers. Sometimes you'll find those. So specialty beers, all lagers typically, although craft beer has infected the Czech Republic too. But among the lagers, among the traditional lagers, you find this broad range that most Americans don't know about and, and have never had access to. And when you begin to taste these beers, you find that they don't taste like German beers, which are, you know, just Bavaria is the, the famous lager brewing country or was region just next to Bohemia. And the, they, they make similar things. They have pale lagers, they have Hellas, they have amber lagers, uh, and they have dark lagers. And yet the beers don't really taste that much alike. And, and the reason is because of this this national tradition and the history in the Czech Republic and the, the way the breweries develop their style and, and how they uh, have come to be and how they came to be different than the German tradition. Can we go through like an example? So let's take like one of these amber or dark lagers and compare it to sort of the Bavarian equivalent. What about the national identity of the Czech Republic influences that style in such a way that it does end up tasting completely different? Well, we got to go into history before we go into brewing, if that's all right. Oh, well, go right ahead. <laughs> the Czech Republic is an interesting place. It's so let, let's let's stick with Bohemia because that's kind of what the region that we're talking about. So if you go to the Czech Republic now, there are two lobes. There's one that's Bohemia. That's the western side and then moravia which is really where the bar most of the barley is grown is the eastern half but bohemia is the historic kind of center of, of czech identity and it's where prague is it's where pilsen is it's where Czeska budjavica is which is where budvar is made it it was where the first pilsner was brewed but the interesting thing is the first pilsner was brewed by bavarian and uh, it's because there's some chance that the the Bohemians were making lagers hundreds of years ago, but if they were, the tradition died out and it, it existed only in Bavaria for hundreds of years. That was really the, the only place people made lagers. So in the 1800s, Czech beer was getting kind of crappy and the ales were spoiling pretty fast. So they were starting to try to figure out how to make lager beer. And the town of Pilsen decided their beer was really bad and they decided to bring a Bavarian architect over to build a traditional Bavarian brewery and bring a Bavarian brewmaster over to make that beer. So the, the famous story is, you know, Josef Grohl comes over and he makes this very pale beer, which kind of sets the world on fire. The really interesting thing is pale beer had become more and more popular. There were a couple, there was a, an Austrian and a Bavarian who had gone to England to learn about pale malting from the the English, and they had gone back to their their respective towns and made Munich malt and Vienna malt, but nobody had made a really, really super pale golden lager. But this guy, Josef Grohl, did, and he did it in the brewery's own maltings. This is kind of a typical way that the Bavarians would have done it at the time. They did their own malting. So you, were, you would be both a malt master and a brew master, which is what Josef Grohl was. So he makes this beer, and it's really famous, and you know, it takes over the world. Meanwhile, the Czech Republic or the Bohemia goes through its own kind of rugged time. At the end of the or at the beginning of the 20th century, they have a world war. And actually, there's even the Czech Republic even plays a tiny role in that. Archduke Ferdinand, the guy who started the first world war, lived in Beneshov, which is south of the Czech Republic or south of Prague. And he had founded his own brewery called Ferdinand, which you can still visit and which still has its own maltings. In fact, when you buy Weirman's floor malted Czech malt, you're getting it from the Ferdinand brewery. World War I comes. It's really bad. After that, Czechoslovakia declares independence. But then uh, the Nazis 
sack come in and sack everything and that is not good for brewing and right after they leave the communists take power with the soviet union looking over their shoulders and soviet union roll, roll their tanks in in 1968 and it's not until 1990 that uh soviet domination leaves the czech republic so from the 1930s through ni- about 1990 the czech republic enters this period where it's just frozen it doesn't change at all so all the brewing techniques basically just stay static meanwhile this is the 20th century so the rest of the world gets really modern and they have all these new brewing techniques and they abandon decoction mashing and they learn step mashing and they get really sophisticated breweries they invent mash filters and all these other things but the czech republic just kind of sticks with its old 1930s tech and 1930s approach and when they become a an independent country again in the 90s they decide that they're going to call this their national tradition and write a bunch of laws that that protect the old way of brewing the the beer that was once bavarian is kind of this old version of bavarian brewing you know the bavarians and germans go into the future in a different direction so the tradition kind of forks there and what we have in the czech republic now is this kind of ancient tradition of uh, making beer in a weird old antiquated way and in a in a weird way it's kind of very modern because it has many of the hallmarks that we think of when we talk about craft beer and you know all the the fussiness that goes with uh, traditional techniques so that's a very long intro to the brewing i, I kind of miss the old days of yeah you get the malt from the brewery yeah it, the czech republic like the uk is very much into barley and they have different kinds of barleys and the brewers all know the barleys um they have weird names that i don't know and they're in they're in czech so they're, they're really hard to pronounce but they'll use different different malts or different barleys for their you know for different breweries and then they're malted particularly in their own way particularly if the brewery uh, does have its own maltings which a few still do so they get a lot of character out of those base malts so should we talk about the what how the czechs make their beer i think that's a fine and swell idea well one of the biggest things is decoction mashing this is in order to be called chesky pivo or czech beer by law it must be decocted the uh, they must use decoction mashing which is one of those interesting things even in in bavaria now there's not so many breweries left who do decoction mashing for a lot of reasons the czechs really are interested in developing all these like thick melanoidins and when you taste a beer you mentioned a palatimabe if you taste basically any beer but it really expresses itself in in stetleys and palatimabes the ambers and the pales you get a really a really thick mouthfeel in czech beers and many czech beers and it comes from decoction mashing and also it's still fairly traditional for some breweries to do longer boils they're really looking to create a lot of kind of cooked qualities in the the way they they do their malting so everybody if you go into any brewery in the czech republic you're going to find a four four vessel system they all do decoction mashing most you do two decoctions not three but the interesting thing too about the czech republic is because they still do decoction mashing their malt is really better designed to go through a decoction mash that's one of the reasons why the uh, bavarians have kind of abandoned that because their malteries are now making really different more modern malts so starts out with decoction mashing when it goes to the kettle they do first word hopping which is super typical everybody does first word hopping i visited uh the boudoir brewery and talked to adam broche the master brewer there and he was really cool i i I quizzed him about decoction mashing and, and like, is this really necessary? Surely, you know, you're fairly big and impressive brewery here. You could, you know, you could develop these characteristics without decoction mashing if you wanted to. Um, they've done studies and he's, he was a very passionate proponent for decoction mashing. And he talked about developing that characteristic mouthfeel that you want. 
And then the same thing happened when I asked him about first word hop, hopping. Like, oh, really? Is that really true? Can you really tell the difference? And he said, oh, yeah. It gives it a fine bitterness. It's absolutely critical to develop that fine bitterness. <laughs> uh, you know, again, uh, if you talk to American researchers who have looked into this, they're, 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 they're at pains to describe the difference between uh, first word hopping and just regular hopping. But um, the Czechs really believe in it. So that's a biggie. After that, it goes, it, it becomes fairly typical after that, but there's a few deviations. Some breweries still use pretty long boils. There's kind of a famous brewery called Kaltenus Samave, which the writer Evan Rail discovered and is a big fan of. They do a two-hour boil. That's not atypical to do longer boils. That's very reminiscent of old techniques. I mean, if you go and you look back at like documentation from even the turn of the 1900s they're doing three to six to possibly even longer boils yeah it's interesting too and with count they do the they they have an interesting hopping schedule so they do it at 45 minute intervals so they do the first one at the start of boil first we're hopping uh then they do one after 45 minutes and another one after 45 minutes and then there's nothing for the last half hour very un-american that way and the character if you've ever had this beer is really interesting when you boil hops for two hours it really creates a kind of interesting bitterness it's very stiff it's sharp and stiff uh, and it works interestingly with that all that character that he's built up in his in his malt. So it's a very kind of thick, heavy beer, and it's got this really sharp hopping. So it's a very interesting kind of unusual approach to get these different flavors. Uh, many of the beers will go through open fermentation at at tradition more traditional breweries. This is again there's there are a lot of ways in which it's kind of like reminds me a little bit of England. Uh, the fermenters when they do open fermentation it are the the ratio of of width to to height is is uh, squat, like you'll find in in the English systems, and I think that does a lot to develop some of that yeast character that that becomes asserted in those more characterful uh, smaller breweries. That's just you know, if anybody uses open fermentation, you get you just generally get more character that way. Um, and so the checks when you walk into one of their the fermentation rooms where they've got open fermentation, it really kind of looks they look look they remind me a lot of many of the English breweries I saw. It's typical. The Czechs say you want to ferment, do primary fermentation uh, one one day for every point of Plato. So if you're doing a 12 Plato beer, you're going to do it for 12 days. Then it goes to lagering, and you most breweries uh, think that 30 days is adequate. But then there are some crazy people like Kautnesamave is one of them, and also uh, Budvar that think that you need to do these crazy long fermentations or lagering periods. So for Budvar, for example, for their standard. Uh, Svetly Lejak, they do 90 days. They let that beer sit in for 90 days. And if the beer is bigger, they'll let it go even longer. Kaut has this beer that's a, it's a dark, strong, dark beer, and they let it go for nine months. They've lock, lockered it for nine months, which is just seems crazy to me. But Well, and that, that's kind of reminiscent of Sammy Claus, you know, that huge beer going for a full year. Right, yeah. And again, you know, if you ask these guys, really 90 days and i did i asked adam about this have you i mean really you can tell the difference between like you know what what if you just cut that in half 45 still longer than average nope nope we're gonna stick with 90 we we feel like he called it uh deep fermentation there's still very slow activity uh, uh you know there's still yeast in there and there's still slow bio transformation happening or whatever it is bio biological something happening and you know, they just feel that it, it provides the kind of unique character that makes Budvar Budvar. 
So I, it's one of those things that very few breweries outside the Czech Republic would would see the economic benefit in, in letting them sit there that long. But they do. Hey, if it works, if it works for them, as we often say on the podcast, you know, the actual technique and whether or not whether or not it actually makes a difference doesn't that's, matter as much as yeah, if it makes a difference boy, to you. That's the thing about brewing, isn't it? That's really the case. As it's weird idiosyncrasies. Right. And then, so now we've gotten through fermentation and lagering. I mean, is there anything different about the packaging? Because, I mean, it, it seems like from one of the statements that you were making earlier, almost all of these sort of Czech beers, they're not making it over to us because they're not really bottled so much as it's a lot of draft service. Yeah. I mean, there there are bottles. Uh, I don't, I'm not really sure why we don't get more of the beer. I think it may have something to do with the fact that it was a Soviet bloc country um, and they never developed those connections. But I, I'm not totally sure. The packaging, I mean, the packaging is terrible. When I was there in 2012, Urquell and Boudoir were both still using green bottles. And, um, you know, just terrible. So you and I, I purchased some bottles of their beer in the Czech Republic to bring home because I wanted people to be able to taste Boudoir, particularly Boudoir, not so much Pilsner Urquell. I wanted them to be able to taste it fairly fresh from the source. And they were light struck. I mean, just being in the grocery store that I bought them at in the Czech Republic, they were still a little bit light struck. So it was just crazy. And I asked both of the breweries about that. And um, I, I was talking to brewers. So they, they said it's marketing, you know, green bottle is what everybody wants. So we have to go with the green bottle. <laughs> that is terrible. So those beers, if you go to the Czech Republic, don't buy them in the bottle, buy them, buy them at the pub. Well, and particularly given how cheap draft beer is in the pub. Yeah, that's really true. It's really cheap. And man, Czechs drink. That's another thing too about all of these traditions. They develop because of the way people consume them. So when you go to the Belgium, people are drinking these beers in cafes with food. Uh, they're treating them more like wine than than kind of a typical, you know, like a that Cascal would be in the UK. In the Czech Republic, these beers are designed to be built. You know, they're they're the brewers want people to drink them in like threes and fours, and you really begin to appreciate them when you have a session of one of these beers. You know, if you go and you have a session of Budvar or Unitytia is one of my favorite local pro, Prague breweries that makes this amazing ten degree. Svetli by Chepney. These things just really pop when you when you have them pint after pint. And people in the Czech Republic do have them pint after pint. So there's this kind of communication that happens between the brewery and the, the drinker so that the context of the where the way it's being drunk is really part of the brew becomes part of the brewing tradition. So and that in the Czech Republic they consume more beer than anybody per capita and and, and they're drinking a lot of that in the pubs. Anything else about the sort of the brewing tradition that you feel is different there with the, the Czech Republic in terms of their national identity? The, the markers I mentioned in the book are the base malts, which are really critical, which we've talked about, and the the other the other elements I've mentioned. The one thing that we haven't mentioned, which is typical in every basically every beer that's brewed there, is the hopping, which are either saws hops or they have more modern hops that are derived from saws hops, which may have a little bit more uh, alpha capacity. So for bittering hops, they taste very much like saws hops. That characteristic of that spicy, tangy, yeah, use your – everyone's had that hop, so they, they know what that hop tastes like. It is considered – like that's one of the key defining elements of, of, of Czech beer that I mean, of the traditional styles. Right. I was going to say, you're not going to go find a, a, a traditional uh, lager made with Cascade or Citra. No, no. They, you know, it's interesting when you have, so most of the beer brewed in the Czech Republic is uh, this Pilsner style, but 
each brewery wants to distinguish themselves from every other brewery. When you taste uh, a Budvar and you taste a, a Unitetja, you're going to get they're, you're really obviously different beers, but you're using pale malt, and that's not called Pilsner malt in the Czech Republic, it's called pale malt, uh, and you're using Saw's hops, and you're using these kind of techniques, this portfolio of techniques, this basket that you can draw from to take these two basic ingredients and come up with hops or come up with a beer that really is distinctive and tastes different. And it becomes a, an incredible challenge and kind of a magic trick to see how different they all are. I wish everybody can go there and, and try these beers. And after a little while, you realize the, the diversity that you can get out of just these two ingredients, depending on, on how you brew. It's like the beer equivalent of like a French kitchen testing you on your omelets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have yeah, a classic French omelet only has a few moving parts and everything else is about the technique. I think that's, that's, that's a good, nice analogy. I mean, that's the Bohemian side. So what we're arguing then is part of the reason the national identity is so different, not, not just because of the freeze out, but it's because if you go and you look at that, that same sort of execution on the Bavarian side, all the techniques have moved into more modern realms of things and no decoction mashing closed closed vessel fermentations very sort of antiseptic very carefully controlled packaging and very carefully controlled fermentation cycles and all that sort of fun stuff but at a faster pace than what the Czechs are doing right although the Germans have their own weird idiosyncrasies because of Reinheitsgebot which causes them to do weird things like recapture the co2 that's getting blown off from the uh fermenting beer because they can't use co2 that doesn't come from the beer it's not allowed in Reinheitsgebot. and there's a, a few other weird idiosyncrasies like they can't if they want to adjust the mash ph they have to they can't just use uh acid they have to they have to make their own acid and through the brewing process in order to do that so they have they do have some weird idiosyncrasies but yeah for the most part German brewing is very modern and, and very impressive. I think that gives us a good base uh, for some of this national identity exploration. There's room for us to obviously explore a great deal more about what you see here, because I think there's actually something kind of very interesting in play. I think you can almost even start to break some of that down, you know, by region, you know, particularly in a country the size of ours. You know, I know that we out here on the West Coast, we brew differently than folks do on the East Coast. But, you know, there's still some large... Well, there's still a lot of similarities. There's just a lot of differences that tend to crop up in those different regions as brewers get trained there. Before we part, is there anything else that you want to tell the audience about this sort of idea of national identity? Yeah, one of the cool things that uh, I discovered when I was writing the Beer Bible was how rare it is for national identities to be born. The Czech Republic is really the last one. When you look at kind of the, the major extant traditions, you you know, you've got uh, we, we're, we're talking mainly about commercial brewing here. There are farmhouse traditions uh, in many places in the world. But when you talk about commercial brewing, you've got those those major European countries. And, and that's really it. And, and among those, the Czech Republic in 1842, when then Josef Grohl uh, invented the Pilsner style, that was kind of the last time we saw one of these emerge until the United States. And the United States has in the last 30 years begun to develop its own idiom and its own kind of approach to brewing, which is, you know, it is really focused on hops. Hops are really our thing. We make many different styles, but I think the orientation towards hopping is unique. And the way we make hoppy American ales, which are now becoming, they're super popular. And I know that, that many people, you know, you, you like milds. I'm sure you, there's a, many of you mentioned uh, DuPont. These are, these are beers that are very unlike American IPAs. But American IPAs now are beginning to dominate the craft 
side of things. Um, I know that among my homebrewing friends, hoppy American ales, whether that's a session IPA or a double IPA or a fruit IPA, like millions of kinds of IPAs you can make now, they, they dominate my homebrewing friends. And I think this is exactly what you would expect if a national tradition was taking place. You know, when you go to Cologne, you get one beer style. When you go to Belgium, you get a few beer styles, but you don't get hoppy American beers. You don't get Schwarz beer. When you go to England, same thing. And I'm talking here mainly about the traditional styles and craft beer has really begun to scramble that a bit. But the the things that are really characteristic that define national tradition, when you go to another country and talk to the brewers there about, you know, and talk to an Englishman about how a Belgian does things, they, they look at you like you're crazy. Like that, the whole Belgian thing is weird to them. They can't understand it and they think it's madness. But it's beautiful madness. It's beautiful madness. And now the Americans are starting to do this. The way that American breweries are using hops has is unprecedented. Nobody in, in the history of brewing has ever done this thing where they don't use a bitter charge or they use this super tiny bitter charge and then they go all the way to the end of the boil before they add more hops and then they add hops from the end of the boil through the you know the end of fermentation and conditioning in volumes that basically nobody has ever used before all those techniques are will look really weird to brewers uh, from these other traditions and the the cool thing to me is that what we would expect to happen when a national tradition is born is that there would be a kind of move towards those beers this is what's happened in other countries i mean now it's really hard to find it, you you can't walk into a pub in the Czech Republic and not get uh, not not be offered Svetly Lejak there. It's just like it's the only it's the beer that they have there. You go to Bavaria, you'll find Helles and Dunkel everywhere. So when you go to the United States now, you find IPAs everywhere because that's starting to become our national beer. So you're seeing this kind of communication uh, in the way people drink and the kind of beers they like and the weird tech techniques that brewers have developed that accentuate those things that Americans like or the what you know whatever the, the tradition is. I didn't really realize that we had our own tradition until I started talking to brewers and after having talked to the Europeans I realized man this is weird stuff. And I know a lot of this stuff comes from home brewers which is really cool. The whole hot bursting thing with no with hops when you only have 5 gallons when you, you can afford to lose a batch here and there. Commercial brewers are a little more reluctant to do that. So a lot of the stuff filters up from home brewers which is which is cool. And I think you'd also expect home brewers, commercial brewers and drinkers to all sort of be on the same page. So the fact that, you know, home brewers are still very experimental, but the fact that they love their hops and are kind of leading this is makes a lot of sense to me. And it's pretty cool. Well, just as long as the U.S. never becomes completely monocultural in terms of beer, I'm OK with it because I like a good IPA. I do, too. I, I'm not I'm not too worried about that just because the, the U.S. is an immigrant country and we're we, we don't do monoculture. So I think that we'll always have people doing weird beer and, and certain people wanting to drink that weird beer. I also don't think that we're going to leave an IPA behind anytime soon. Probably not. But onward to other beer styles. So, Jeff, thank you so much for taking some time here to talk with us and you know, kind of exploring the ideas of the national identities uh, and also really kind of taking that look at the the Bohemians. To the listeners out there, don't forget, you can go pick up uh, all of Jeff's books. Uh, we got The Beer Bible, Cider Made Simple, The Secrets of Master Brewers. You, I forget, you, do you write for All About Beer? or I do. Yeah, I do. I write the classic beer column for All About Beer. And then you've got the Beervana podcast and the Beervana blog. Uh, you've got Beer on the Brain. So go out and support Jeff. You can go find uh, all of his books. We'll include links to all of his stuff. Uh, make sure and really do check out uh, The Secrets of Masters Brewers. I was really impressed when I started digging into that. And uh, a really lovely book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. From Coming from you, too. You write pretty books your damn self. 
Well, thank you. This has been the Mutual Love Session on Experimental Brewing. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at national brew identities. So what do you think? Will you bust out a decoction, a multi-hour boil, and open fermenters when you get jonesing for a bohemian dark lager? Do you think American brewers should learn a lighter hop hand or, well, just lean into this emerging national tradition? Let us know. And so remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at expbrewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum out there. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, funding the treatment and cure of pediatric cancer. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.